if you'd open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, no, Mark chapter 6. That was a quiz and nobody got it. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. We're continuing in our study of Mark, which is why no Matthew was wrong. Mark, um, and we're asking two questions through this study. Number one, what does the text say about Jesus, about who he was and is, about what he has done and continues to do? That's the first question. Who is Jesus? And the second one is, what does this mean to us? What is the revelation of Jesus Christ as given to us through the work of Mark? Tell us about Jesus. And when we answer that question, or to the extent we answer that question, that is the good news. You know, there's all kinds of, of pleasant news you can receive, happy news you can receive, but there's only one good news. That is why it is the good news, and that is the work of Christ in our lives. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. And immediately, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard, uh, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and was intended to pass them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning as we look to it, Lord. We know that in it we have truth that we need, Father, for life. Father, for truth not simply to nourish our soul, although we know it does that so well, but also for instruction, Father. So we look to it, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do it just a little bit different this morning. We are really going to focus on just one verse. We're going to take the time to look at the entire section, uh, do that kind of quickly. But then we're going to really focus in on just one verse, verse 52. And then we'll ask the question, what does that tell us about Jesus? And what does that mean to us? So first of all, let's consider this um, section as a whole. We're still in the immediate aftermath of that experience of the disciples where Jesus sent them out two by two and they came back with that miraculous report of healing and casting out demons and all that stuff. And Jesus is now trying to get them away to get some rest. So they had gone to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to get rest. And, and there was no rest to be found there because a big old crowd of people met them. And that's where the feeding of the multitude took place with the loaves and the fishes. And so Jesus now, guys, guys back in the boat, and this time they're going to Bethsaida, which is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit different direction. Again, looking for some rest for the disciples who have been so heavily involved in ministry. And he sends the disciples on ahead of himself. He dismisses the crowd in verse 46 and heads into the mountains to pray. And if you're familiar at all with the geography there, uh, at that north, on that northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, a lot of mountains, a lot of places he could go to be alone and to pray and which would also give him a really good view of the Sea of Galilee. So it would have been relatively easy for him to look out and see the disciples struggling in the boat as they were. 
Uh, verses 47 and 48, Jesus, who's evidently been in prayer most of the night, because the comment about him coming to them in the fourth watch of the night would have put the events of this section early, early in the morning, just before dawn. So evidently he had spent most, if not all, of the night in prayer. And then he sees them struggling against the wind, and he begins to walk towards them with the intent of, walk, of passing them by. Now Mark alone adds that notation, that Jesus' intention was to get past them, evidently to be on the beach when they landed there. But that didn't happen. They spotted him. Verse 49, uh, the disciples see Jesus, and they really get shook. I mean, they, they, they get deeply, deeply troubled. Um, verse 50 um, could best be translated as they were beside themselves in a really extreme way. Now, I don't know how you get more extreme than simply being beside yourself, but they were, to be, they were going to be ex beside themselves in a very extreme way. And the reason for that is because they take him to be a phantasma. Now, most translations will say ghost or spirit. That probably isn't the best because you have an idea what a ghost is. It's like, you know, a dead person come back from the dead. And a spirit is like a, a spirit. This is a word that means something that they did not know what it was, a phantom. Uh, some translations say apparition, which is kind of a word that makes your skin crawl a little bit. That's exactly what they, they did not know what they were looking at. They saw something didn't know what it was, and they were not happy about it. So they are deeply, deeply troubled, but Jesus calls out to them and says, take courage, it is I, fear not. Don't you love, you, people are so common, you know, when we're going through a rough time, we say, just don't worry about it. You know, it'll work out, don't worry. I love this. Jesus tells them, don't be afraid, and then he gives them a reason, it's me. You know, we can handle really serious stuff when we have the knowledge and the confidence that in the midst of it, Christ is there. But boy, it doesn't take much at all if we don't have that confidence to really throw us off. So marvelous to know that Jesus is with us in these events. Then in verse 51, Jesus gets into the boat. The wind dies down. This has happened before. They have seen this before. And yet they are all amazed. Again, beside themselves, beyond measure, and amazed, right? Completely at a loss, even though they've seen it before completely at a loss to explain what has happened. They simply cannot believe it. They simply cannot process what they're seeing, which really brings us to the, the, the object of our focus this morning and, and verse 52. Because I believe in this verse, in this 52nd verse, Mark is really isolating the point he wants us to get. Now, we believe that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the absolute author of Scripture. Not one word there that he didn't want there. But we also know that he works through human authors. We know from the style of writing, what was included, what was left out, that in Scripture we have this marvelous combination of the inspiration of God by his Spirit and the work of godly people. That's how we get Scripture, this marvelous combination of the two. So Mark has something here he wants us to see in this 52nd verse uh, because he alone makes this comment. This comment is unique to Mark's gospel. And we read in the 52nd verse, for they had not gained any insight from the loaves, but their heart was hardened. That's what I really want to focus on this morning. They had not gained, the reason they were frightened, the reason they were confused, even though they'd seen this stuff before, is because they had, they had no insight because of the loaves. They hadn't gained that insight, but their heart was hardened. So let's just go ahead and look at this 52nd verse. First, they had not gained any insight. Sinimi is the word. 
And the word literally means to put things together. To mentally collect together various thoughts into kind of a comprehensive whole so that we understand it. And we even use expressions like that in English. Oh, now, it, yeah, it's all coming together for me now. That's exactly what this word means. It's a real common idea. We've got random thoughts in our head about a subject, and finally something clicks, and zoom, it all comes together. Never forget, uh, when I was in engineering school in the Coast Guard, they gave us a whole week in refrigeration. We were supposed to understand refrigeration in a week. And the, and the instructor at the beginning of the class told us, he said, uh, this class will make no sense to you at all until an instant. He said, in an instant, you're going to suddenly figure out, well, we have to make one thing hot to make something else cold. And none of us, you know, we didn't know what that meant. Until about Thursday, when we were all sitting there completely befuddled, had no idea what the man was talking about. And all of a sudden, this guy in the class went, oh, I got it. It all came together. And we were like, no, shut up and leave. <laughs> and then one, and, and the teacher had told us this was going to happen. He said, it'll be like popcorn. And then one after another, oh, yeah, now it makes sense. And all the guys would leer at you like, you loafer. So, but sometimes things, we got all this data, it just has to come together. And that's their problem, is they haven't connected the dots. They haven't brought the stuff together. Marx is here saying that, this, this, that the disciples, they're not there yet, right? They haven't brought everything together. This is a really interesting word. Um, it, it goes all the way back to Homer, which is like the very beginning of, of the Greek language, the language of the New Testament. And Homer uses it to describe combatants coming together. So you can kind of get the visual that way, you know, the whole David and Goliath thing. But Homer doesn't use it just to describe combatants coming together in order to fight as much as combatants, be they individuals or, or armies, in order to settle the matter. You know, think about the whole, you know, David and Goliath thing, right? Goliath had been out there for 40 days, haranguing on the armies of Israel, defying the God of Israel. And David shows up, and what he in effect says was, this is coming to an end, we're settling it now. And once David was done, the matter was settled. So it's, it's to bring even conflicting ideas together in order to try to make some kind of a comprehensive whole. And the disciples, they're just not there yet, right? They got all this information about Jesus, but it's not fitting together. And Mark really really brings it down to one point, and that's the loaf thing, right? Some of your translations will say the matter of the loaves or the, um, the event of the, the incident of the loaf. There's like no word there in the original. They have to put it in the translation to make the translation make sense. But it's almost as if he's saying, you know, that thing about the loaves, that thing that happened with the loaves, it's kind of vague in there. It's still vague in their mind. They're, 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 still, they're still not putting it together. And this explains, I think, so much about the, the difficulty for the disciples because we read this and we think these guys had been inundated in, you know, Jesus stuff. Basic son of God stuff. Casting out demons, feeding multitudes, healing people to the point Remember, the disciples have just gotten back from when they were set out two by two. So their own hands have been doing this stuff. And in the feeding of the multitudes, the Gospels are very clear. Jesus broke the bread, and then the bread went 
to the disciples, and from the disciples it went. So their own hands have been involved with all of this miraculous stuff, but it's not piercing the void. They're not putting it together. So when he gets in the boat, they are amazed. They're shook up. They just haven't connected anything, and there's a reason for it. There's a reason they have struggled. It says their heart, Mark writes, their heart was hardened. Now, a couple things here. First of all, he says singular. Their heart was hardened. Pronouns plural, but the heart is singular. Their heart, groupthink is nothing new. Collectively and individually, I would suggest, they're in the same boat on this situation. They're still not able to bring everything together. The heart was hardened. And, and at that word, that, that phrase, the heart is hardened, you know, where do our minds immediately go? Pharaoh, right? How Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Other places in Scripture were cautioned about, you know, not allowing our hearts to be hardened. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, God specifically warns us about allowing our hearts to become hardened don't go there. Not the same word. Not the same word. That's the word scleros, which is like hard, that kind of heart, right? We have that in English, right? Scleros. Those of you in the medical community should spot it right off. I won't try to say it. I can't pronounce the word. I am sorry. But what do you call hardening of the arteries? Somebody help me. Louder and clearer. Of what? Arteries. Okay, there's a bigger word. I can say sclerosis. It's the big word I can't say. I was expecting help. A, I'm not even going to try it. I'm going to mess it up. So it's hardening of the arteries. That's the word. We use that word in England, but that's not the word here. That's the other places hardening is used. Here the word is so much easier. Here the word is poro'o. Poro'o, which also comes into English as porous. Porous. Now, you may think, that sounds kind of contradictory, right? Because if the heart is hardened and cannot understand, the heart must not be porous. It must be like not you know, the word. The word is from a, a stone. Poros is a type of stone, which we actually have here in the United States. It's called tufa. Anybody have any idea what tufa stone is? I didn't until I looked it up. Tufa stone is what you find in the southwestern United States, and it's a result of minerals being deposited, typically by a rising and falling lake, or like a stream cascading over a fall and depositing minerals, and then over time, as the level, like Mona Lake in California has a lot of this. Uh, in the Navajo areas, tufa is the stone, the very porous stone the Navajos used to carve out the shape of their, their, their silver work, and they would pour the molten, molten silver. They use that for their mold. So it's a very porous, very soft stone. If you have travertine in your home, Travertine is very closely related. Now, when I saw this, my first thought was, ooh, man, I got family here from Hawaii. Lava rock. Wrong. Because lava rock is formed with heat. Sorry. Uh, this is cold. This takes no heat. But it's a very, here's the point. This is what all this was about. It's a very slow, very gradual buildup of minerals over time, calcification, the whole process, that causes these formations like in. Gamona Lake, California is one of the best things. If you look at pictures, you see these like towers of mineral deposits that have been left there by the rising and the falling of the lake without heat. Just over time, this progressive 
layering of mineral deposits that forms stone, right? The first person to use this idea in connection with the human mind or body was Hippocrates, that guy. Yeah, and he used it to describe the, the process of the loss of vision with cataracts. The progressive layering of stuff, I don't know what, that causes eventual blindness, right? It's this progressive deposit that builds up. That's what Mark is saying is happening or has happened in the lives of the disciples, right? So even though they have all this information about, you know, they got Jesus teaching the miracles, they've even participated themselves, but they're not both individually and collectively putting it together because there's some measure of calcification that's preventing that. And I think what Mark is saying, and here's what, here's what I would suggest Mark is saying, he's saying that a lifetime of seeing things one way, the way they saw things before Jesus came, the way they learned the world worked before they met Jesus, the way they figured out things worked, that is that has caused this calcified layer that is preventing them from connecting all the dots that they have in Christ. All of their suppositions about how things work, how the world worked, has blinded them, has blinded them to what's actually right in front of them. So they're seeing it as a person with cataracts. It's right in front of them, but it's not getting through. And everything, everything that Jesus is saying and doing, things they themselves have done, is not getting through. They can't connect the dots, which I think really speaks volumes to us. It, it doesn't take a lot of, I think, imagination to know where this speaks to us. You know, we come to Christ in faith as they did. We respond to the teaching of truth, and truth resonates in our hearts. And we embrace the gospel, the good news, the message of forgiveness. I love that. I love to know my sins are forgiven. We embrace his saving power to know that as long as he's with me, nothing, in, nothing will happen in my life except by his will, and he's with me in the midst of it, and his work in me, and his promise of eternal life. I love that stuff. But we come to a place when we embrace like that much of the message of Christ, and we kind of stop there. And we, kind of, we come to a place of, um, I would call it perceived equilibrium. Where we're, we're, we're standing with, with the gospel and all that it means, all the good news, what it means to me in one hand, and my understanding of how things work in this world in the other. You know, like how, you know, I'm going to take care of me and my own first and let the rest figure it out for themselves, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what, what I want to do and count on Jesus to help me through the way. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had a really sobering conversation with a real good friend of mine. I respect him so very much as a pastor, and I may even have shared this with some of you. But he was talking about this really difficult conversation he's had with several people in his circle of, of fellowship, the people he fellowships with. And I, we're not talking about people that are like living in gross sin at all. Right? I'm just talking about people that are struggling to really fully engage with a biblical Christ-centered worldview. 
These are not people that are, you know, cheating on their spouses or cheating on their taxes or cheating their customers. They're, they're working hard. They're doing their best. But he said the conversation comes to a place where he asked them one question. He said, when was the last time you honestly asked Jesus exactly what he wants you to do with your life? And he said the answer has stunned him. Never is the answer. I'm not interested in that. I will serve him to a point. I will love him with a whole heart. I will support what he does in the world, all that stuff. But he does not take charge of my life. I remain sovereign over my life. And my good friend, not only, he, he said, this conversation hasn't happened once. It happens again and again and again. People wanting all of that really good stuff that Jesus has to offer and yet still retain sovereignty over their life. And that leaves us in this place of, like I say, a perceived equilibrium. It's not equilibrium at all. It's stagnation. You know, the interesting thing about the calcification process of this stone that Mark talks about can only happen on a surface that's not moving. This process cannot occur. This layering of, of, of minerals that hardens into a stone cannot happen if the surface it's falling on is moving. It can only happen if it's stationary. It's not equilibrium. It's a stagnation that so many people, and I'm talking, we're talking good, good people, good Christians. They love the Lord. They're just not quite ready to put him in charge yet. And so it's really hard to go forward. A place where we're functional as followers of Christ, but not really healthy. We're not healthy as believers, and our Christian experience is not healthy till we're in that place where we seek and we see and we serve Christ as our absolute sovereign. Where, what he says goes. Without that place, we live in a delusion. We've stopped moving. And as we stop moving, this process of calcification starts. So there's three things I would suggest this morning that we should keep in mind. Three um, conclusions I would draw from what Mark says. First of all, we need to be constantly mindful that equilibrium between a life in Christ and life in the world is an absolute delusion. It is impossible. What does light have in common with darkness? The second thing is that the inevitable result of trying to live that way is a paralyzing calcification with the things of this world. If we are not deliberate in avoiding it, it will eventually take over. So thirdly, we must, number one, constantly and deliberately pursue the person of Christ. Now, by the way, this list I'm going to give you things to do, it's all summed up under your kingdom come, your will be done. So you pray that heartfully and thoughtfully you'll get here. Constantly, deliberately pursuing the person of Christ. Constantly, deliberately inviting the Spirit of God into our heart and mind, asking for ears to hear that, number one, He would keep us moving forward. Constantly moving forward. Praying the prayer the disciples couldn't pray at this point because it is important to note that the Holy Spirit had not yet descended on believers. They were not yet born again by the Spirit. That doesn't happen until Acts. Remarkable they got as far as they did on their own, but this is where they're at. This is the prayer that they literally cannot pray, but we can. 
Holy Spirit, don't let me get stuck. I don't know about you, I can't drive, I can't drive turning, down turning an arm without that chill coming up my, up my spine going, what must it be like to be stuck out there? Holy Spirit, don't let me get stuck in the stuff of this world. Holy Spirit, keep me moving forward. Holy Spirit, show me where my thinking remains the thinking of this world and where it's holding me back. And then the fourth part, which is the hard part, Holy Spirit, help me deal with it. Help me change the way I think. Because the the way I think I know will ultimately determine how I act. It will determine whether I move forward or whether I stay where I am. Father, we thank you so much. You are so gracious to us, Lord. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, and we stand in that light. We stand in the freedom and the hope and the confidence. There is so much we inherit, Father, when we ask you into our lives, Father. What a glorious thing there is, Father. But we're mindful as well this morning as we look at Mark's gospel, what Mark has to say to us, that it's entirely possible, Father, for us to inherit all that good stuff and yet still not connect the dots in our head. We look at this marvelous stuff, Lord, that the disciples had accomplished with their own hands. They had passed out the multiplied bread with their own hands, and yet still they couldn't connect the dots about who Jesus was and is. And Father, we're certainly no better of ourselves than they were. But Father, we are grateful this morning that one of the gifts you give us is the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. You have poured out your Spirit on the church. So both collectively and individually, Father, we can invite you by your Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to those areas where we have allowed worldly thinking, Father, to get a hold of us in a way that will keep us from moving forward. And that's such a dangerous place to be. I don't want to get caught there. I don't think any thinking person would. Lord Jesus, by your power, by the presence of your spirit, help us to see those areas where the thinking of this world yet clouds our vision. And then, Father, by your spirit, help us deal with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.